you know, we'll pay maybe $100,000 a year for a kid to be in care, but some people will turn their nose up at providing a family $100 to go towards their light bill. to this week's episode of the Social Work Tutor Podcast, where I am joined by Leanne Wilson. Leanne, would you like to introduce yourself to the social work world and tell everybody a little bit about yourself, my friend? Hi, yes. Hi, social work world. Uh, My name is Leanne Wilson. I'm a licensed social worker here in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, USA. I am currently a school social worker. I've been a school social worker for the past two years, uh, but prior to that, I was a child welfare caseworker for a little over 10 years. Um, so I'm really excited and really thankful to be here with you. Leanne, my friend, the pleasure is all mine. I, I'm grateful that you are joining me all the way from Pennsylvania and bringing some Americana into my life here, <laughs> a suburban, leafy part of northeastern England. Um, Leanne, my friend, as a tradition, when I have guests on the show, I always ask people a little bit about what brought them into social work. So if we can go back a little bit into your life to start with, if that would be all right. What, yeah. what, what made you decide to be a social worker, my friend? What first brought you into our noble and esteemed profession? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I would say that there were actually a lot of different things that brought me into social work. So just a little bit of uh, background on my childhood. Uh, I am the oldest of, I was the oldest of five children. And then my mom later had a sixth child later in life. But growing up, it were five of us. Um, We were economically disadvantaged uh, in layman's terms. We grew up poor. uh, So had a lot of struggles um, just from living in uh, an impoverished uh, state of being. And there were a lot of key influential people in my life that kind of led me down the path of social work. So I always knew I wanted to do something in the helping profession. I always saw like psychologists on TV and you see them like with the patient, like laid out on the couch and they're talking. And I always envisioned myself in that role. I honestly had no idea what a social worker was, right? Because we see uh, psychologists on TV, we see psychiatrists. And usually when a social worker is featured, it's not necessarily in the best light. Um, But as I as I got older, um, we did in high school, I had a a guidance counselor who was really, really supportive of me. I didn't know if I would be able to go to college. Um, We didn't have I didn't have money. And I just thought, you know, well, I'm poor. I can't go to college. I can't afford school. Um, And he told me about community college. uh, And he also gave me a test to see 
what kind of skills I had and what professions I would excel in. And on the test, I remember psychology showed up and social work showed up. And I'm like, oh, there's social work. I'm like, you know, well, what is social work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I started, uh, you know, looking into it and and the the social work standards kind of aligned with my own personal um, thought process and just how I interacted with individuals. I thought, okay, I have this opportunity to be a support and be a resource for uh, disadvantaged individuals or people who just need that extra support, that extra um, advocate. And so I I really started leaning towards social work um, and like looking into it. Uh, So that's, yeah, that's kind of where, what led me into the decision of of social work. And, And like I said, there were different people throughout my educational career um, who kind of encouraged me to continue on in furthering my career. So I didn't know about um, financial aid or, or student loans or anything along those lines. And it was those counselors. And then I later had a professor and she said, you know, you want to make any money. So I got my associates at a community college. And she said, if you want to make any money, you have to get your master's. And I just yeah. remember thinking, uh, you know, like <laughs> I just did these two years of school and you're basically telling me I'm going to be poor for life unless I continue <laughs> on. So, um, but she was just, and she saw the fear that I had, you know, I, I had a, a, a real fear of just kind of like, Oh, I don't want to just, kind of be economically disadvantaged for life. And that's almost the sense that I got, you know, everyone is like, social work is great. You know, they would kind of give you like the pat on the back, but it's like, are you crazy? You know, like there's no money in the field and that kind of a thing. Um, But she encouraged me. She's like, you know, just take out the loans. You'll pay them off. You'll have a good career. You'll make a difference. And so I, I did, I continued on. I, Got my bachelor's from the University of Pittsburgh and then later my master's uh, from the University of Pittsburgh. It's interesting how, you know, we're on different sides of the Atlantic and yet the same picture that you depict of social work, which is one of a poorly presented career, one which when is spoken about and when is portrayed in the media, is generally in a negative context Mm -hmm. and also of a career that the kind of people that should be drawn to it, people such as you and I, don't hear about the career earlier on in our lives. So if you think of when you would ask most children and most young adults what they wanted to be, it's very rare that you get people wanting to be social workers unless they have a family member who is a social worker or they have had some sort of involvement with social worker themselves. That involvement generally tends to be when a young person has been a child that's been looked after or if their family members or friends have perhaps been foster carers and cared for children and have had some interaction with social workers that way. So it's interesting that we can come from very different countries, very different cultures, very different backgrounds, and yet the profession of social work is is portrayed very similarly in that public conscious 
that uh, both you and I have experienced. Taken back a little bit then, Leanne, thinking about your experience as a social worker, because um, particularly myself, you know, living in the in the United Kingdom and Northern England specifically, it's difficult for a lot of people who are outside of America to almost understand that two-tiered system in social work between caseworker and then getting a master's and being a qualified social worker. Mm-hmm. Could you just explain that a little bit? I mean, I don't want you to go into too much detail because I, I can hear in my head right now all my American <laughs> listeners said, we don't want to hear this anymore. But just briefly, for those who yeah. aren't from the US, could you just explain that system, how it's almost two-tiered, that you can stop at a certain point and be a mm-hmm. caseworker and then you go on mm-hmm. to be licensed and have your master's? In a couple of minutes, how does that work, my friend? Yeah, and 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 actually every county and state kind of do things a little bit differently. So like there are some states that operate where you have to have your degree in social work in order to be a a caseworker. Uh, The state that I'm in and the county that I worked in, uh, that was not the case. So you have to have a degree, you have to have an undergraduate degree in order to apply to be a caseworker, but you do not have to have a social work degree. and it is, I would prefer, um, I would prefer, you know, I think that there are a lot of uh, benefits to having that social work degree, but there are people whose beliefs do align with the, you know, the social work code of ethics, whether or not they have the degree or yeah. not, but, you know, you take it and you have some people who come into the field of child welfare with a background in criminal justice or uh maybe computer engineering or, you know, art and, you know, and they're, they're doing casework. So um, it is, it is different. And even listening to, uh, you know, some of your shows and, and, and the term social worker, I'm like, even our, you know, our caseworkers are not all social workers. Some yeah. of them are, but some of them are not. I've noticed on the social work tutor Facebook page there, there appears to me, and I'm not sure if you've experienced this yourself, but for me looking at it from afar, there appears to be a lot of professional protectionism over that title from mm-hmm. certain social workers where people will be say people will say things, I'll, I'll see comments such as, oh, we're a social worker, uh, you're not, you're a caseworker. Mm-mm. And I'll quite often see people saying, um, you've got to earn this this title. Uh-huh. Like, comments. Is that just me perceiving this from afar, or, or is there a lot of sort of not necessarily infighting, but is there sometimes animosity between caseworkers and social workers, and a lot of protection over that specific title, or is this just me picking up things that aren't necessarily um, a no. sign of the wider scene? No, no, you're you're spot on, and I'll be honest, I feel very protective of, of all right, my title, right. You, you know? might have left those comments, my friend. It might be it might have been you leaving those comments. I better be careful what I say. No, no. I just I I I because I've worked alongside a lot of individuals. Um yes. and again, I don't want to discredit the caseworkers who may not have the degree in social work. I do not want to discredit their work at all. Um there are a lot of and it goes on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. There are some social workers, you know, who maybe didn't, uh, they don't have the those social work values instilled yeah. in them. Yeah. Um, but I do, I am very protective of the, 
of the title, some people will say, you know, I've done social work and it's like, well, you know, you've done other things. And, and, but you, I, I say the social work is when you, when you have, uh, you know, that's your educational background because you wouldn't have a, I'm very protective of the title because you wouldn't have, you know, I can't go, I work in a school right now and, um, but I would never, I teach things and I'm, I'm a teacher in, in essence, but I would never say I'm a, I'm an, a teacher is my educational background and this is my title. And, and maybe that's a, not a great example, but even like a, a physician, a doctor or a nurse, you know, there, there are differences in your educational background. And sometimes our jobs will, uh, we can kind of cross over into each other, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I think we have to be very protective of, of that social work title. And, and, the, the, and rightly so, Leanne, and rightly so, because I, I think that in the profession, we can quite often be browbeaten as social workers. And I think we, we it's a difficult one because a, a key tenet of our profession is that we have to be humble. We have to be empathetic. We almost have to operate. Mm-hmm shadows because we we want our clients to take the credit and not ourselves so we are kind of held back a little bit by our own professional regulations and codes of conduct and ethical value base mm-hmm. but at the same time we should be proud of our title because you know we spent a long time I spent five years at university yeah I mm-hmm. the social worker. I did a three-year undergraduate degree, which was a Bachelor of Science in Child and Family Studies. Then I went on to do my master's in social work. So I spent five mm-hmm. years, and all of that was predicated towards the goal of becoming a social worker. I knew that's what mm-hmm. I wanted to do at the start of my master's. Do you think that we do need to get better at that ownership, just like doctors would and just like teachers mm-hmm. would and say, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be a social worker? Do you see that... I wouldn't necessarily say there's a shame here in the United Kingdom, but a lot of the time, and I've got to hold my hands up myself included, mm-hmm. a lot of the time social workers in this country, <laughs> particularly those of us who work in child protection, mm-hmm. are sometimes a little bit reluctant to tell strangers what we do. Like, I, I, I have to be honest, my friend, there is many a time I've been at a party and people have asked what I do for a living. And I I think I, I'm not it's not worth the argument, it's not worth the risk. I'll just say that I so I just say I work for the council or something like mm-hmm. that. I, I work mm-hmm. for a local authority because it's like it's like spinning a roulette wheel. You right. either get the reaction I get in this country when I tell people I'm a social worker if I'm meeting them for the first time. You either get the holier than now response, which is, oh, you're amazing. I could never do that job. And people unnecessarily fawn over you. Or you get the reaction, which is, well, you just take people's children away. Yeah. Do you get the same thing? Yeah. About you? <laughs> I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the, yes. <laughs> that's the first thing that, that comes out of uh, someone's mouth. And you know what? I used to earlier on, I think I was a little more kind of like mindful of, uh, do I want to engage in this conversation? Yes, but yeah. you know, like, and you're kind of yeah. like, uh, do I want to share this? Now I, I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I've always been proud to be a social worker, but I, yes. I'm more secure in, um, in who I am and in the profession. And, and it, it's true, you know, no one goes into social work to, take anyone's kids and but that's the perception you know that even the meat that 
the media, I think now it's getting a little bit better. And I do see social workers, you know, displayed in different TV shows. And I'm like, God, oh, that's awesome. You know, because a lot of times when they are displayed, it's uh, in a negative light. Um, and that's the perception that that anyone who's outside of social work and doesn't yes. have any relation to it, you know, that's kind of what their thought process is. You say, yeah, I'm a social worker. And they're like, oh, so you take people's kids. You yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, no. No, I, I feel the same as you. I'm, I'm immensely proud to be a social worker. It's a pretty good job given that I spend about evenings talking to people about how much I love being a social worker. It's a good <laughs> job. I'm proud of it. It'd be strange if I was doing this otherwise, but, <laughs> I do. I've got to be honest. I still sometimes think if I'm meeting people for the first time, oh, is it worth the risk? Because mm-hmm. you do get that reaction. It's quite sad because it's part of the same culture that we were talking about just earlier, the same culture which led to you being an adult until you realised there was this profession called social work and I was in the same position as you. That mm-hmm. same culture which so poorly represents our profession is the same culture which leads people to have a misrepresentation of our profession. Let's talk about social work right now for you, my friend. I mean, we've just gone through the most difficult year that most of us have ever experienced on a societal, cultural, political level. How are things like in your state right now? What's what's the scene? What's the culture? How, How are you doing? How are things going for yourself and your clients right now in Pittsburgh? Yeah. Pennsylvania, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we just had actually, um, we just had a a mayoral election, primary election that took place last night. So the city of Pittsburgh just, uh, the Democratic Party elected a, its first um, African-American elected, looks like we're going to have a African-American mayor for the first time ever here in the city. Amazing. Um, Amazing. So that was pretty, yeah, that was pretty you know, exciting. Um, and I would just say you're, you're right on. We said this last year has been one for the books. Indeed. It's been, uh, very parts of it have been very difficult. Um, parts of it have been very, very difficult. I think with, uh, you know, with COVID and everything, and then kind of how it turned into like, a almost a po- like it was politicized uh wearing masks not wearing masks uh that's bizarre to me we- that, 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 <laughs> we've got the same in this country i'm i'm certainly not that really? bad. We've, we've the american culture we have got exactly the same in this country wow. so i'll make this point it's not you know okay any specific uh in nationality okay it's bizarre to me that science has been has become politicized to this to this extent that choosing to wear a mask or refusing to wear a mask has somehow become a statement of political intent how has that even happened i just don't understand it's bizarre it's bizarre it's bizarre to, to say the least i i don't understand i don't get it either and even um it's almost like people are are so invested in other it it's 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 almost like a catch 20 it's it's weird because like some of the people who were so against wearing masks were also mm. very much vocal for like 
reopening the schools and there was, was a lot of question of how does that how can we you know what does that look yes. like safety yeah, wise yeah, yeah. Yeah. um so it, it it has been very interesting um I, I do work for a school district right now. Like I said, um, I was in child welfare for 10 years. I'm currently in a school. We we are open. So I'm happy, um, you know, about that. And we're, I'm, I'm, I'm prayerful that, you know, like going into the next school year, things will kind of kind of start to ease their way mm-hmm. back into like a little bit more sense of normalcy. And hopefully with the... Um, change in political parties we can just you know continue to improve and think and things can uh just continue to improve really yeah definitely definitely um how how have you noticed your profession being shaped by that political landscape because you know we we, we watch we here in the uk watch <laughs> the American political scene uh, with relish. It, it, the the American political races, yeah. the presidential elections get almost as much coverage in this country as do our own elections. And I think that's that's the way throughout the world, really, with, with America mm-hmm. having such a high profile on the world stage. Mm-hmm. How has that shift? Have you noticed much different in social work over the course of the past five months since President Biden came to power. Have you noticed a trickle-down effect yet in terms of your job, how it's working, the resources you've mm-hmm. got, the direct work with clients? Has that change started to filter through yet, or will it be a longer-term shift? So I, so I think it's a little... I think it'll be yet to come, like a longer-term shift. So we were like easing into the, into going back into schools. Um, there were, you know, talks about it in, in January. Uh, we did come back in, in March. Um, I know I'm happy that uh, president, we have a social worker uh, in the white house. Yeah. And, you know, so that's exciting. I was very excited about that. Um, and just really hopeful. I would say, um, something that's been challenging for me, not necessarily on a professional level, more like a personal level or just, uh, and I understand everyone has different belief systems and everyone has different viewpoints. Um, but something that's been challenging for me is just, uh, some colleagues that, uh, or social, you know, people who I just, the social work values, and it just comes down to, um, you know, do your social work, do, do your values as a social worker align with your personal values, if that makes sense. And, and I think some social workers or caseworkers or individuals, they that there's a little bit of a difference. And I just kind of wonder how we can serve families that are, you know, that have gone through this significant loss we you know we have people yes. who have been out of jobs uh people who are out of health care have lost family members and it's just i don't know as a social worker 
And this is me personally. I don't know how as a social worker you can look at all of that and then not want to have a, a political party that would more align with the social work values. It, look, it, it's it's an incredibly interesting point you make there. And, and I, in the run-up to the US election in October and November of last year, I interviewed um, a social worker who was voting for Biden and a social worker who was voting for Donald Trump. The, the negativity I got on the podcast um, I did with the social worker who was voting for Donald Trump is unlike anything I've experienced in all the time mm. doing the podcast and writing about social work and so on. And all the time I've had a sort of public presence within the social work world. And a lot of people were making points, as you've done quite politely, which is I find it difficult. Uh, I try to, to dance around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of people <laughs> make it like that, which is I find it difficult to understand how our value base from the National Association of Social Workers in America would mm-hmm. ever fit with somebody who would vote for Donald Trump, given this is what he supports, this is what he's done personally, these are the things he's he said, this is the way he treats the kind of people who are vulnerable and in need, mm-hmm. who have additional support needs that we would be supposed to work with. However, I, I have to say that I had hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of social workers who were Republican and who were voting for Donald Trump making arguments for why they would support him. Now, I didn't necessarily agree. Well, I'll go further. I didn't agree with those arguments, but mm-hmm. I did find that I could understand why people were making those arguments. A lot of those arguments were coming from a position of, I can still be a good social worker, but I can separate my personal beliefs from the professional beliefs. That was an argument a lot of people made. Another argument a lot of people made was the argument that a Republican choice is a positive choice for clients because they wanted to instill an ethos of people pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. And a lot of people who were, this is the argument, a lot of people who were supporting Trump that were social workers were saying, well, I have a value base, which is I want clients to be able to support themselves, not live on welfare, not live on handouts, not be part of big government. And I believe, therefore, in a right wing Republican view. And I believe that is best by my clients. What I didn't understand was just how deep those divisions were because by me simply having a social worker on this show who was voting for Donald Trump, you can see this yourself, Leanne, when you finish the podcast, Mm -hmm. if you want to look at some of the reviews that people left, people were leaving one-star negative reviews on iTunes for me simply having a conversation. Have things moved on from there? Are those divisions still as wide or... Um, are people able to come together or do you still think there's a big division within social work between those who would say I'm a social worker but I still support Mm -hmm. Donald Trump and those who are more going down the traditional social work route which would be a democratic route are those divisions still there or are people coming together I think they're still there I I hope that people will come you know what I think they've always been there honestly Um, and I think that uh, unfortunately, or, or, or maybe even maybe fortunately, uh, 
we've gotten insight into some of those divisions and what they look like. I hope and pray that, you know, we can come together. And I hear the, uh, you know, my, I'll say my personal values may be different than um, an individual family or, or, or friend, but I've, I wholeheartedly believe in in supporting someone else's individual values. So I, I think it's hard to say I'm a social worker and this is my personal belief and people should pull themselves up by the bootstraps, but then I'm supposed to be a support person for this individual. Like, I don't see how those two things relate. Um, yeah, I, I don't see how those two things relate. I think as social workers, we are charged with being voices for those who may not have the ability to use their voice. And I struggle with how you can do that if you are, if you have kind of those implicit biases yes. in, inside of you, you, and you're kind of viewing this person as, come on, you need to get your stuff together on, you know, mm-hmm. on one hand, and then you go in for eight hours a day and you're supposed to be a support and an advocate. And I just think, um, at least for me, and I, I know the expression social work is a work of heart. I yeah. think that your heart has to, to be in it. Um, and I'm not saying that you, can, you can't have different political values and your heart not be in I'm not saying that at all. But for some individuals, I do think that there's that bias that whether or not you realize it impacts how you're working with families, it it absolutely does. You know, it absolutely does. We all have our own implicit biases and things mm-hmm. that we aren't, uh, you know, aware of. And I just think it's um, it's dangerous when you when you know you have a, a, a bias and you're not really working to go against it. You know, I I, I totally get what you're saying. And it, it it's taken me a long time in social work before I was able to start calling my fellow social workers out on their biases. Mm -hmm. It appalls me, Leanne, and uh, you might have seen this yourself in your career. It, It appalls me the way that some colleagues that I have worked alongside speak about clients and service users. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have seen far too many fellow social workers speak negatively about clients, make jokes about clients, mm-hmm. seem bothered and worried and hassled that a client is asking them for support. You know, mm-hmm. take the mick out of clients, joke about them, say really inappropriate things. I I, I understand that there is a there is a culture of gallows humor and mm-hmm dark humour within social work. God forbid, Leanne, <laughs> I contribute that to that with my memes. And, and, but I have to, you know, I, I, need, yeah. I feed into that. A lot of people like my memes because <laughs> I, I do feed into that. But when I was first doing my, my memes and putting the content out there, there were some memes that I would put out there, which I'm deeply ashamed of now, and I've tried to delete them and I don't have them public anymore. Some people might mm-hmm. still share them because, you know, once you put an image out, it's there. Right. 
But there were some memes I put out which did veer on, on that culture, which is laughing at the circumstances that clients could perhaps have put themselves in. And I didn't really realize the the negative culture that was that was feeding into at the time. I thought, oh, well, this is just having a joke about, you know, a, a situation. But when that situation potentially linked to a situation that a social worker could be in with a client, and there are many, many very popular accounts out there on Instagram and so much still mm-hmm. post content like that. But I realized many years ago that that was wrong. It's hard, isn't it? It can be hard when you're in that situation to challenge social workers. Um, and and I, I've already started to do it recently, but it can be difficult because it can really upset the dynamic. If I've been in a in an office and a, and a social work colleague of mine has been saying something negative about a client and I felt the need to speak out, you can almost become ostracized for doing that. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, I, I think about social workers who perhaps work in, in either way. Let, let, let's, let's be fair and say either side of the political spectrum. I imagine it's terribly, terribly hard for a social worker who has Republican Republican views to work in a blue state in a blue county. Oh, yeah. I imagine it is very, very hard for a social worker that has democratic views to work in a Republican state or a red county. It must be very difficult because we can't we can't write off 50, 60, 70 million people who voted Republican. Mm -hmm as being nasty, horrible people. We can't do that. Equally, we can't say the same for Democrats. If you're from a Republican-leaning mindset, people do have their personal reasons and there are, you know, there's good and bad in both sides mm-hmm. of the argument. So how do you do that, Leanne? How do you how do you bring that that division together? Because as I've seen myself from the reaction that I've got from doing a podcast and from having many, you know, thousands of people on, on, on each side comment and get in touch with me to say, well, yeah, this is why I hold these beliefs and this is why I think they are compatible or this is why I don't hold those beliefs and this is why I think they're incompatible. Mm-hmm. How do you bring about that challenge when it's about something so personal and heartfelt as a personal political view? Can you bring about that challenge? What do you do? Yeah. And and for me, it's so I, I definitely um, I take everyone as an individual. So regardless of your political party and or or whatever, I'm not like, oh, you're Republican. We you know, like I'm not like that at all. Um, but I think when you're personal beliefs, regardless of your party affiliation, because I mean, to be honest, there are Democrats who have some uh, personal value beliefs that don't align with, uh, you know, some social work values. Um, So for me, I kind of take it as individual. um, And I'll I'll be honest, I I would say I've done pretty good with like, over the years, kind of weeding out um, individuals who I, I, I used to get in heated debates with people and it's like, I almost felt like, you know, even people that I might've went to grad school with and it's like, come on, you know, I know you learn, you know, this, like, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like these yeah, heated arguments yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. I'm trying to like beat you over the head and like, get you to, to see like the error of your ways. And it's like, if you don't want to, recognize it. If you've done all the schooling, you've worked with this population, really, I I feel very strongly if you're not in it for the right reason um, and you're causing more harm than good, maybe it's not the field for you. And I think that's where um, in, in 
the county that I work in and, and in a lot of other counties here in the U.S. where you don't necessarily have to be a social worker to be a caseworker. Um, and again, that does not mean that there aren't excellent caseworkers, and it doesn't mean that everyone who has that social work degree is an excellent social worker, but when you don't have those uh, core values, I I do feel comfortable challenging, um, yes. you know, challenging individuals because I, I look at it like um, I'm a social worker, I'm an advocate, and if, if someone is doing something that is going to cause damage or harm to an individual, I feel it's my duty to speak up um, about it and to kind of challenge it. And I get the dark humor and I have, you know, and I think we've all probably said a joke or something, you know, that may have not, you know, may have teetered on a fence. I definitely have. I definitely have so many many jokes I got, my friend. And I know I've, I've, you know, I've laughed at and, you know, made a joke that after you, you know, you have that insight and that reflection and you kind of look back and you're like, you know, that may have not been appropriate. And and in in the line of work that we do, sometimes it's necessary to like get you through those long days. Um, There's a bit of humor, but when it gets to the point where it's going to cause someone harm, we do have to speak up. We do have to advocate um, for, for our families. And I do feel comfortable kind of, it's, it's caused some, uh, it's caused some, uh, rifts in relationships for sure. Um, you know, when you do speak up and, and people don't like it and, um, yeah. And then they, but at the end of the day, I know at least I, at least I did my part. At least I, I challenged this because I don't want anyone to feel like they can, say something offensive about any group of person in my presence and that I'm almost that I'm um, giving the okay. If I don't speak up, I feel like exactly. I'm, I'm saying that it's okay and it's acceptable. What I've learned in this situation is that you can, you can approach it in two different ways. If you want to challenge somebody and if you want to try and change somebody's behavior, then you can do it in two different ways. You can either be confrontational or you can be, conversational mm-hmm. a confrontational approach is to immediately demonize somebody to write them off and to say something such as well you've said that you believe that you've written that therefore you're this person and to write them off as a human being or oh, you're an evil person to demonize them to stigmatize them to paint them in a certain you know light because of what mm-hmm. they've said perhaps in an isolated incident the other way is one of conversation, which is to say to somebody, well, I find this offensive and I think this isn't compatible with my social work values because of these reasons. And then to engage with them to learn why they've said that. Sometimes it might have been set out of frustration. Sometimes it might have been set out of ignorance. They genuinely didn't know that was offensive. I found that quite a lot with some people with the all lives matter comments that when oh, yeah. black lives matter, yeah, you know, when, when, when black lives matter was, was, was trending this time last year, when a lot of people were tweeting about it. A lot of people, let's get this right, Leanne, a lot of people who were using the tag All Lives Matter were racists. Let's get that right. Mm-hmm, they were, trying to, they yeah. were definitely trying to detract from the Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter movement and definitely not accepting the ethos and culture and reasons behind that. 
However, I did find large numbers of people who were who were tweeting that and saying that because they generally thought it was a nice thing to do. They thought, oh, great, that's a nice thing to do. And that's just an example of how people can be kind-hearted but just ignorant. You know, not mm-hmm, everybody, mm-hmm. not everybody is always online. Not everybody's on Twitter. Not everybody right. are reading the same things and speaking to the same people that perhaps engaged folk like me, you, and many of our listeners are. So I think you have to be kind on people if you challenging people you have to come from the empathetic value base so if you think back to our core social work values of empathy and congruence and the person-centered practice of Carl Rogers which is very much the foundation of our profession you have to come from the position of everybody is good but good people sometimes do bad things Mm -hmm. and I think if you approach it from that position and approach it from a forgiving stance I have found that people are far more likely to change conversely if you go out and attack people and demonize them as being you know unfit and beyond the pale for something they've said that is perhaps coming from a place of ignorance or just lacking knowledge and sensitivity i think if you come from that position of argumentative and confrontational you risk driving them away from making change and i think you've got Mm -hmm. to forgive people and i had to forgive myself like i say you know if i think of some of the things that i perhaps said or done as an ignorant younger man i Mm -hmm. balk at the, at the things that I perhaps once said in the insensitive manner that I dealt with people and spoke about things. But I think if you can look at your past and you can regret things, I think that's positive because it shows that you're growing. And I, I've learned that that's how you challenge other people. You challenge other people through dialogue. And that's why I'm more than willing to give a platform and to have discussions with people who don't feel differently to me, who do feel differently to me and don't hold the same beliefs. I think we change through conversation. We risk getting embroiled in politics, my friends. So let's move. Let's try and move on. Let's try and move on. I'm very interested in it. You know, personally interested in this subject. Yeah, in politics, I'm like, oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Let's move on from this, my friend. Let's let's talk about you. Let's talk about. the family advocacy model, because when me and you first spoke about a month ago now, we were talking not only about our mutual interest in politics, as we've just done there for a length of time, my friend. <laughs> we were also talking about our shared values in family advocacy in terms of being there to support families and getting back to that value base of a social work system that doesn't do to people, it does for people. So before you came into school social work, you spent a significant amount of time working with a family advocacy model. Would you like to share with our listeners a little bit about that model and how it worked? Yeah, sure. So I was um, a family advocate under a conferencing model. So the conferencing model is really, it's a way of... um, the focus is on the family and building the families up. Um, so, and giving the power back to the family. So putting the power of, of the entire case into the family's hands. So the family is the driving force for identifying what goals they want to work on, how they want to go about working on those goals and what they want their support system to look like. So, you know, historically a case comes in uh, the agency, we look at it, we say, these are all every, these are all the things that are wrong with you. This is what you need to fix. This is when you need to fix it by. 
and this is how you need to fix it. So that was that's it, historical. That's uh, how casework, um, you know, looked. And with the conferencing model, as a family advocate, you're you're giving the family the ability to say, you know, these are the goals that I would like to work on. Um, this is my support system. This is how I would like to go about, uh, you know, working on my goals. So as an advocate, whenever that whenever a case would come in, what we first would do, we would do a deep dive, a record review of the case, because, you know, a lot of our families have been, um, they may have had prior referrals. They may have uh, been a child in a, in a case at one point in time, you know, so we're doing a deep dive record review. And with that record review, we're looking for uh, prior referrals, um, prior history with the agency, um, we're looking for possible support systems who were in place, uh, possible yeah. service providers who were really beneficial. And then we're documenting we're documenting all of that. So as an advocate, um, that was the first part of, of, of what I would do. And, and as a caseworker, you know, I would do a, a record review, review when a case comes in. But, you know, it's very different as yes. a caseworker. You're carrying a large caseload and you... You know the time you have. You have your. your well, you kids, don't. You that, that's, that's the sad thing. Yeah, you, you don't. There are lots of things that you want to do in mm-hmm. frontline child protection. You know, CPS as it is in America, but you just don't have the time. So let, let, time. let's yeah, let, let's get that right. You know, those of nobody should feel bad for not having the time to have best practice like that. Right. Don't. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and and that's the the struggle too because you know, you know everything and and what best practice is and what you should do but it it's just it just isn't feasible you know you have that caseload so so that deep dive record review as an advocate i was able to do that and it almost it made me look back at at my time as a caseworker and i'm like oh you know you just you you see the benefit of it and you're like Gosh. wow if i had the time and the ability you know to do this as as a caseworker so so that that deep dive record review is is what you first do and then you go out as an advocate you're 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 an advocate to the family but also a support to the caseworker because yeah. again you know the caseworker they have large caseloads so you're going out and you're meeting with the family and you're completing i completed what was called a prep and you're prepping the family for the conference so um just for comparison historically a family service plan would be held in a, in a child protective service office. You know, you invite, you tell the parents what day it's going to be. You send them the notices. You know, this is what time we want you here. And they're to come up to the office. We're going over your plan. This is everything we have in place for you. Um, and then you're having them sign off. So that was historically the way of, of doing it. And then in the conferencing model, um, you're prepping as an advocate, you're prepping the the family for the conference. You want to have their family conference in a place that they are comfortable in. Um, so it might take place in the home. Uh, it might take place in a church. It might take place at a relative's house. Um, but you want their conference to be somewhere that they that's so powerful. are comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Somewhere that they're comfortable. Somewhere that's uh, they're not that. I guess you could say like fair playing fields or fair. You know, like you don't want them to to come into this. Now, some families, they may choose to come into the 
to the CYF office, but usually yes. not, you know, usually they would identify somewhere else. So you're prepping the family. Um, you're, you're saying, okay, we're going to have a family conference. And a lot of families, they would be almost a taken aback, like, especially if they had prior involvement. And it's like, so you want to, you know, do a conference where I want to do it and you want me to invite my friends and family. And it's like, yeah, we, you know, we want to build your support system up. The idea and the goal behind it was that we, we always say the goal is to close out. We want to have successful case closures, successful meaning we don't want to get a, another re-referral in the next six months. We want to build up support systems so that this family is supported outside of a government agency. Yeah. Um, and then we're asking the, the family, the, the mother and father to share their story. And with that story, what we want to hear is take me back to your childhood. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what was your life like growing up? Who did you grow up with? Who was in the house? Um, Was there any domestic violence? Was there any mental health? Was there any drug and alcohol? You're getting this full assessment of them and and what it was like for them. And, And what you find is that a lot of the times there has, there's trauma that was in, in, in their childhood. And what we're seeing is generational trauma. Um, so you, you see that you get that insight and then you hear from the family, you know, what brought you to the attention of child protection services. And they go into, you know, well, this is what happened and they tell their side of the story. And so then you are also preparing them for again, the conference. And you're saying, who are your support systems? We want to invite as many supports, yes. as many people as possible to your family conference. Um, we want to invite rel- relatives, family members, neighbors, um, church members, uh, whoever the family can identify. And we want to get them all there to the conference. And the the one of the major points of that is that the family is able to hear the story all at once. Um, you know, you have, you have families that it's like the telephone game when a call comes in or there's an open case and you have families that, well, I heard from this family member that she, you know, left her kids home alone, or I heard this, or I heard that it eliminates, you know, it eliminates all of that. You're all here and you're all here to support and you're all getting the story at the same time. And then we're the, and then you're here also, because we want to see how we can utilize natural supports. So for example, Example, if um, let's say a a call came in and the call came in that a six-year-old was found walking a three-year-old to the store, they were by themselves and no, no parent or guardian. Well, you know, we get to talking to the mom and maybe we find out that she had a job interview and her babysitter fell through at the last minute. And the three-year-old was asleep. She thought she would be back before the three-year-old woke up. Three-year-old wakes up and is screaming, I want candy. I want candy. So the (laughs) six-year-old thinks, you know, I'm going to walk my little brother to the store and get some candy. And now we have a CPS um, referral. So we, if we share that story, maybe there's a family member that, you know, sometimes parents don't feel comfortable asking their family for certain things, or there have been bridges that have been burnt. Um, And then other times family members, they just don't know that help is needed. So we might have a family member, you know, that is able to step up and say, you know, well, I'm willing to be a, a backup babysitter, you know, or I'm willing to 
to take you to job interviews and the kids can sit with me in the car. You know, so we have the reason we have the family there is we we want to see how can we support this uh, mom and dad, you know, and I, I'm trying to be cognizant of saying mom and dad because we're so in child welfare, so mother driven, you know, and it's, yeah. you know, two parents in, involved. So but we want to support them. Um, so that was that's the the biggest part of of the conference. You're also asking um, you're asking the the family or the 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 parents really you're asking them uh what was called the miracle question so you know you go to sleep at night and you're you fall into a deep sleep you know there might be some snoring some drooling involved and you wake up in the morning and a miracle has happened and all of your problems the problem that brought you to our attention is solved um how would you know a miracle occurred and that you ask that question to kind of get some insight. It's um, strength-based thinking and it gets some kind of thinking, you know, well, I would have my kids back in my care or I would have, you know, I would have a reliable resource to help me when I need a, you know, when I need a break. Um, So it really gets, it really gets the family and the parents thinking about what needs to take place in order to achieve their goals. And they're the ones identifying what their goals are. And of course there's some non-negotiables, like if there's something that the court, if there's court involvement and the court has court ordered something, that's a not, it's considered a non-negotiable and we're putting that in the plan. But outside of that, we want the families, they know what they need, you know, better than, than we do. And they know if they need um, help with drug and alcohol, they know that. Um, or maybe they need help with child care. So the, we're, we're having the family identify what their goals are and not the agency telling them what their goals are. And then we're, we're as an advocate, we're aiding them in um, some of that self-discovery. And we know that's sustainable, Leanne, don't we? We know, we know that external motivation is fleeting and waning. That if we impose our plans that are driven from a professional lens, which is often biased, it's often biased by the professional's own personal experience, professional experience, training and development. We know that if we create plans that are external to families that are reliant upon the external pressure of agencies such as CPS, that isn't going to work. What's interesting about everything you've said there is we have elements of all of those things you've mentioned here in the United Kingdom. But what we do is we kind of have pieces of them. We bolt on bits by bits. We don't have a cohesive system that fits all together like that. So when we do engage families in a wider family context, usually when we're working, if we have what we call initial child protection conferences or looked after reviews or review child protection conferences, which are the kind of meetings you're discussing when you'll sit down with parents and you'll consider risks and unmet needs for a child or children, and you'll make plans, review those plans and so forth. They don't tend to be very family focused. They tend to be in in a model whereby the family has to meet the needs of the system 
rather mm-hmm. than the system meeting the needs of a family. Those meetings, when we were doing them face-to-face, would be held in stuffy council offices. It would be rare for family members to have funding for taxis and transport and so on. It would be rare for family members to have any funding to pay for childcare. So we were imposing these rules. I say we as in the royal we, the local authorities mm-hmm. that I've operated as part of. We would ask the family to fit in with a very traditional bureaucratic model which has come to an office at this time in the afternoon we'll try our best to get a time that fits you but it has to be monday to friday nine to five Mm -hmm. you'll come to a building of our choosing we will very rarely pay for any transport we'll very rarely pay for any child care you're going to sit in this meeting you're going to have reports and you're going to be subject to your life being analyzed and, and and pulled apart by your children's teacher somebody called an independent reviewing officer who's chairing this meeting you've perhaps never before seen in your life and who will perhaps never see your children a social worker who you've only just recently met you're going to have a minute taker there your life is going to be condensed into risks and then we're going to grade your life at the end if you're using signs of safety scale and we're going to grade the risk your children are exposed to from zero to ten and then at the end of this we're going to categorize your children into the risk of abuse that we think they're subject to and we're going to accuse you of neglecting your children physically abusing your children emotionally abusing your children or sexually abusing your children it is an incredibly harrowing thing for parents to go through and i think we can lose that as we were talking about earlier we can lose we can lose the gravitas and the importance the empathy of knowing what it's like for parents to go through that that's the usual model when we do have that more family focused approach it tends to be additional aspects that are tied onto that process such as what we call in this country a family group conference we'll sit down with family members we'll bring in aunties uncles cousins brothers sisters grandparents and so on sit down and create a family plan we might look at doing deep dive chronologies deep dive genograms and eco maps to understand those family systems we might bring in elements of systemic practice we might look at chronologies looking at life stories perhaps a parent and assessment that could bring in the elements of what you were discussing earlier which is well how have we got to this position what was good about your own childhood what was bad about your childhood what did you learn to do because of what your parents did to you what did you learn not to do because of what your parents did to you what were the driving factors how did you end up in this position because of domestic abuse because of drug and alcohol abuse because of mental health problems because of family dysfunction what brought you to this place and again you know we we do use the miracle question we do focus on strengths-based practice and there's a very popular model which came over from australia around two decades ago that is used quite a lot here in the united kingdom which called which is called signs of safety which uh, you talked about um uh, yeah, those sort of final non-negotiables, we call them bottom mm-hmm. lines. If we employ okay. that practice model, it's, it's a bottom line. What, what will we not tolerate? What will we accept no more of? What we have, though, sadly, Leanne, is we don't have a standardised approach which encapsulates and brings all of those things together. Much as you were discussing earlier where you have sort of county-to-county and state-to-state approaches in terms of how social workers are regulated and what's expected in terms of what qualifications social workers must have before they can call themselves caseworkers or social workers and so forth, we have local authority systems in this country 
country where we are split into hundreds of different local authorities. And whilst we are all beholden to the general, same guidance, which is called working together, and the same legislation, such as in my job, where most of our most of our work and life is dictated by an act of parliament, an act of legislation called the Children Act. How that is interpreted and how that was delivered can vary massively. You know, you can literally cross a border of a county one mile apart and you can go from a council that's outstanding to a council that's inadequate. Literally, mm. it can be that, that the, the, the differences in terms of delivery can be so stark. And what you find time and time again is the councils that are outstanding aren't the ones that are best at paperwork, aren't the ones that are best at procedures. They are the ones that are best at engaging people in an empathetic and caring Mm -hmm. manner because it's a truism. It's a deep and long-lasting truism of social work. Mm -hmm. But if you work with families as individuals and treat people as human beings and engage with people on a person-to-person basis, they are far more likely to engage with plans. And if people are far more likely to engage with plans, the local authority are going to get better outcomes in terms of their key performance indicators. So it always boggles my mind whenever I see social workers and managers, service managers, independent reviewing officers, whatever part of the system you you care to pick, it always really confuses me when you 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 see people using a punitive approach and a bureaucratical approach and thinking that is going to bring about rewards and positive outcomes. Occasionally it might. Occasionally some people may be motivated by the fear of losing their child or may be motivated by somebody giving them extremely stern words that that motivation is fleeting and that's external mm-hmm. motivation. If you want people to change, you have to treat them with compassion, you have to treat them with care, and you have to give them the internal motivation. But isn't it sadly, Anne, that we are talking about this as if it's a novel approach? Because let's get mm-hmm. this right. Um, this family advocacy model, you use that in, in an aspect of your practice, but that isn't widely applied everywhere, is it? So the so actually so the conferencing, um, the conferencing model, and you spoke to the family group uh, decision making in the county that I worked in. We did utilize family group decision making, and I would kind of compare in in years prior. And I would, and I'm not sure if if all of your families uh, go through that uh, model or not. But the conferencing is very close to family group decision making, but it is now applied to all families who are in, who come into, into the attention of CPS. Mm -hmm. And I did just want to, I didn't speak to this. I did want to make sure to add to another major part of the family advocate role that I think is, is really important is uh, family finding. And that's one part of it that I really did enjoy um, the family finding so it was, you're always looking for family and for supportive resources for the family. Um, so whenever a case opens, from the time it opens until the time it closes, you're looking constantly, who are the supports, who are the family, and you're making note of it. So you're asking the parents, you know, in the event that God forbid you have to, your kids have to come 
someone needs to have your kids for a couple of days, who could be someone who would be able to, you know, step in. And some parents are, you know, they're like, well, my kids aren't going to come into care and they don't even kind of want to think of it. And you just kind of say, well, you know, like, God forbid you have to go to the hospital overnight for us for a study who could watch your kids. And they're, you know, so you're identifying um, supports because uh, a lot of, we know that families do best when they are with family. Um, And a lot of the kids that are in congregant care or in non-relative foster homes, they don't do as well as children that remain and, you know, remain with family. So that was a big part of my role as a family advocate is doing that family finding, um, family finding searches. So we would do like national, uh, use a national database search engine to search for relatives. So, you know, when you type in someone's name and it says like who all the potential family members are, we were, if the child was in care and we weren't able to have that communication with the parent, we were doing those database searches and then reaching out to family, family members. Um, that was, Definitely an interesting. Leanne, I've, I've done that many a time, my friend. Many, many a time, my friend, have I knocked on a random family member's door and said, "Right, hang on, I'm not a debt collector. I'm not here. To check, I'm not here to check your television license. I'm not here to do a survey or to sell you some personalised Bibles or Tupperware. Mm-hmm. Have you ever considered caring for your long lost cousin's children?" Uh-huh. We, I've been there myself, my friend. It's a, yeah, I've I've been there. I know where you're coming from. Okay, yeah, and and you know what? In the family advocate role, that was newer for me. The that was not a typical caseworker uh, caseworker thing that I I would do. I mean, I would reach out to family members that we knew about, but as in the making the phone calls to you know great aunt great aunt Ida who lives you know across the other, you know, on the other side of the country. And, you know, sometimes she doesn't even know that she has great nieces. And now I'm, you know, calling and saying, hey, you know, um, would you be interested in being a potential supporter, a potential uh, caregiver? Um, and then we also did like life maps where we would go down uh, um, and they would make a, with older youth, we would do like a timeline. So we would get yes. big poster boards and, you know, go through like, okay, when you were from zero to five, who did you live with? Who were your teachers at that time? Did you, who were your, were you involved in any sports? And we're really just getting, you know, any and everyone who, who has been a, a positive support in that youth's life. And then we're, we're reaching out to them as well. Yeah. And, and I, what if we're talking about how well this model works then if we're talking about rolling out this model um how what impact have you seen so you've talked about you know you were part of this model when it was first sort of being embedded and now because that's been successful it has rolled down what have the outcomes of that been have you seen more children staying with family members have you seen mm-hmm. less involvement have you seen a quicker turnaround of involvement have you seen more sustainable plans what has the tangible outcome been of these changes when you look at it from an organizational from a macro level what difference is this making on a county-wide and statewide level mm-hmm. so it's it's definitely more children in um relative care versus congregant care um 
we did see a decrease in the amount of children in congregant care. Um, so those group home placements, um, yes. and, and that was really, I think that, I think that would be the biggest, uh, the biggest positive outcome. Also just families in general, I think, I mean, and it, I don't think it works for every individual family. I will say that, you know, there are some families that are just harder to engage in general, but for the families that are willing and able to engage with you, um, that support and them knowing that, okay, like, yes, you're an outside agency, but you actually care about me. You care about yes. my children and they can, you know, families know if they have a caseworker who cares about them and who cares about their well-being. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Yeah, they, pretty yeah, obvious. Yeah, yeah. They, they know. And if they know that, that you're, you're there for them and you're really working on their behalf yeah. and not against them um, and, and you're able to build that trust up, I think that's definitely um, an internal, like, uh, strength of, of the model. It's just the families are more willing to engage because they don't feel like it's, you know, they don't, they don't have those same feelings of you're against me and you don't care about anything that I have to say, you're not listening to me. So there's that difference there. How did families react to perhaps experience different models? So I imagine you would work with you know, many families who perhaps had legacy mm -hmm. cases that were known to the CPS system that perhaps worked in different models, more adversarial or punitive or bureaucratic models. What was the feedback from families and children who had seen an older model that was less family focused and then come across the advocacy model? What kind of feedback were you getting from clients? So I think, well, for most families, they were shocked i'll say the ones that who had historical cases and who may have had some cyf involvement or child protective service involvement in the past um they were i would say kind of once that initial um shock kind of wore off they were more willing to to work and participate once they got the feel like okay this is a little bit different and it's you know you're not just coming in and telling me what to do this go yeah. around. You're like getting, you know, insight from me and, and I can have the conference in my house and I can invite my, my friends and my family who are supportive to me. Um, definitely more willing to work and to engage when they feel like they're a part of the team and that it's a team approach and that it's not, we're telling you what to do. Um, I that's mean, quite and, and shocking, though, isn't it, Leanne? Isn't isn't that quite telling? <laughs> that's that says that reaction says a hell of a lot about what is so wrong, or what has been so wrong with our systems that we work in. That a naturally caring and empathetic and congruent and family focused approach is met with shock and suspicion. <laughs> That that says a lot, doesn't it, my yeah. friend? Yeah, sadly, sadly, it sadly it does. And especially if you have sometimes we would have families who didn't have previous history, but they had a friend yeah. who did, you know, so it's like yes, they already, yes, have, yes. you know, they already have these. Well, I know my cousin had a case before and, and it didn't end well yeah, for yeah, her, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. so yeah. they're ducking and dodging your phone calls and, you know, like. And then, and then once they I've had families where you know, 
once they get to know who you are and know who you know your personality. And I'll say even even in the regular case where I think that's why I really enjoy the family. I really enjoy yeah. being a family advocate because it really aligned with who I was as a caseworker. So it was a easy for me. It was easy to kind of I had a little bit more time and to um, invest into my families individually to get to know them um, and be that supportive person, which is who I am as a as a person and as a social worker. Um, so it definitely lend it to the benefit of relationship building with the families for sure. It's, it's, I, I've noticed sometimes in my career, and I'm not, I'm not sure if you've noticed this too, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, maybe it's just me um, that evokes such a response from people. But when I've gone in into engaging with a family and I have simply done my job correctly, just simply done mm-hmm. what I was trained to do and acted in the way that I want to act and just generally tried to be the best social worker I could be, but be a decent person whilst I was doing it. I've been sometimes met with an eerie sense of suspicion that mm-hmm. families are almost thinking I'm trying to collude with them or lead them <laughs> to a false sense of security. And they're like, hey, uh, why do you keep turning up on time? Why are you being like this? Why are you sending me minutes of the meeting? Why are you why are you sending me out a visit list when you're going to be here for the next six <laughs> months? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm just doing the right yeah. thing. If you yeah. ever met with that sort Is of suspicion, it- when you, you, you do the right thing, and because people haven't always had that level of support, they get a bit suspicious. Yeah. And and I think that's really sad. You know, I'm always kind of like, wow, you know, I'm glad that that there, you know, there are people like you and I, and I'm sure yeah, 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 tons yeah. and tons of other social workers. But it's also kind of sad, you know, that, wow, you've never had someone uh, return your call when they said they were going to return your call or, you know, like you said, you know, I said I was going to get back to you about X, Y, and Z and I'm getting back to you about it. And you're, you know, so thankful and grateful for it, but it's like, well, this is like, you know, I'm doing my job. This is the basis of, and I, and I think that again, it goes back to social work, truly being a work of, of the heart and, and your heart being in it. And I just think of, treating everyone with dignity and respect and regardless, you know, regardless of whatever hardship uh, a family has faced, I feel like someone once told me, you know, we're all one bad decision away from being in a, in a difficult place, you know? And I, and I, and I always think of that. And I, and I think just not having any judgment or, um, you know, I think families say no, when you, when you come at it with a, a true, heart to help they can tell and and it's it's sometimes said when you you know when they share that that has not been their experience I always say to people Leanne it's something I think most days at work there but for the grace of God go I and when I look at my own childhood when I look at my own background when I look at the situations that people who I grew up with that I grew up on the same council housing estates as when I look at the positions they ended up in I 
am fortunate mm. and grateful that I did not end up in that position mm. because most of the precipitating factors such as domestic abuse, alcohol abuse, um, family mental, family dysfunction, poor mental health issues, uh, growing up in abject poverty, growing around uh, antisocial peer groups and so on. When I look at most of those adverse childhood experiences, I should have been in in those positions myself, and and I think that a lot. But it doesn't take somebody who had my childhood to do that. Anybody can do that. One or two difficult positions can put you in a terrible position in life. You know, a, a lot of people who don't work in social work or perhaps coming into social work perhaps naively think that there is a certain culture of society in a certain socioeconomic group that make up the vast majority of people we engage with in child protection services or social work in general that is wrong i i in one day i can go from going to a high-rise flat in an extremely impoverished part of town to going to a mansion in the countryside I can go from working with a single teenage parent in one child protection conference meeting mm -hmm. to going to work with two parents who are extremely well off who are both represented by solicitors that they're privately funding mm. in another meeting you work with all aspects of society in this job don't you when you you have to accept that as you've said we we have to come from that empathy base what i've also found as well is by employing that approach that i go to work because i like my clients i go to work because i want to help my clients i believe that everybody i support with is a good person who perhaps has done bad things or been mm -hmm. in bad situations that just makes me a lot happier you know it mm -hmm. sounds a bit selfish yeah. Yeah. It is. but it does you know if I go to work and I believe that the people I'm going to meet that day are good decent people that I want to help and not that it's some sort of drudgery or some sort of burden mm -hmm. that I have to do this I and this was all not that long ago, my friend. This was probably already, you know, relatively recently, maybe two or three years ago, when I changed this mindset. I changed to a mindset of I don't have to be a social worker, I get to be a social mm -hmm. worker. I don't have to go and visit these families today. I get to visit these families today. When I move from a mindset of servitude to gratitude, my whole mm. life, my whole approach to social work changed. And I know not everybody can be in that position because for me, a lot of the things that were holding me back from that position were, were issues that I had that I need to process stress and pressures and so on, things that I wasn't coping with mm. that well. It, it, it can be hard to get into that mindset, but when you get into that mindset and when you actually look at the families and people you support from a position of love and compassion and empathy, mm -hmm. you wake up energized and you want to go to work, don't mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. Abs absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, and I'm I'm right there with you. You spoke earlier with the, the adverse childhood experiences and just, I think, I think often, you know, um, at any point in time, it, it could have been me, it could have been my siblings, it could have been my, you know, like, this could have been me. And even, even now, um, the students that I work with, I just, it's definitely, it's a blessing to be able to pour yes. positivity into other individuals, because I, there were supportive uh, 
individuals that I can think back to, you know, for me that really, they might not know the impact that they had on me, you know, it, uh, a counselor believing in me and saying, you know, you can go to college, you know, yeah. like that, the impact that that had on me. Um, and I just always think people are going to remember that quote, people will remember yes. how you make them feel like they, it doesn't matter, you know, how you make someone feel, they're going to remember that. And I, I never want to make someone feel yes. that I'm looking down on them or that I'm thinking less of them. Um, because I, again, at any point in time, I, I could have been a, a child in, in the system, or I could have mm. been, um, you know, facing some of these, these, uh, these challenges. And, and even now it just, we're one bad, I just think that that quote, we're, you could be one bad decision away from having, you know, Definitely. you know, a, a difficult, uh, being in a difficult position and just kind of building up and being that support to the family so that they know, like, you have an ally in me. I'm yeah. here to support you. I'm here to help build you up. Um, my personal saying that I have for, for myself as a social work, like my social work, uh, saying for myself is I'm a social worker because I encourage people to build upon their own strengths. So like, I want people to, everyone has different strengths. We all have different things that we're good at and they're, you know, they vary from person to person, but if I can pour into you and, and help you to, to believe into, believe in yourself and to strengthen some of the the gifts and the talents that you already have and to become the best version of yourself. That's my ultimate goal. And to, and when you see it happen, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. You know, when you see um, families and, and children and mothers who are able to say, you know, you really helped me believe in myself or, or they even, you know, they share their goals and their dreams and, and you, allow them to express that and you encourage them and you help them and you aid them in reaching and obtaining those goals and those dreams. That's the most rewarding feeling that there is to know that you're a support to someone. I, I, I think we, we are incredibly privileged in terms of the access that we get to the intimate lives of other people in social work. I, I, I've held newborn babies many a time before the baby's own fathers have held them. Mm -hmm. I have comforted people and hugged people and cried with people at their most difficult times. I have helped people move home. I have helped people secure funding and finance. I have given people food when they were starving. I have consistently been with people at the darkest and also the lightest times of their life. And if not for a social worker, I would never have had those experiences Mm -hmm. at the level that I have. Yes, of course, I would have had, you know, turbulent emotional times in my own personal lives and had those connections with the intimate people who I know as friends, families and neighbours. But you would never get that wide range of experiences that you would as a social worker. And it has made me a far better person. Social work has humbled me and it has Mm -hmm. grounded me 
in in life when i think of the person that i was before a social work before i became a social worker compared to the person that i am now i am a far better and a far richer and a far deeper person i i thank i thank my clients for that because it is not the system that has done that for me it's not my education that has done that for me it is my clients that have done that for me. And if I can give a little bit back along the way in terms of being a decent social worker, uh, that that's a small price to pay for everything I've got. And as well as that, I've got a roof over my head. Social work does pay my mortgage. It does mm-hmm. keep my car on the road. Uh-huh. And, it does, and, and it does keep my son in Thomas the Tank Engines. Um, <laughs> let's 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 get to a final uh, topic, Leanne, because we could we could we could talk all day, my friend, given our mm-hmm. parity in view and our similarities and our shared way of looking at the world. Let's end on a specific topic, though, which is something that I've noticed has been a theme throughout many of the things we've been talking about today. And that's the us versus them culture. Now, a lot of the time in social work, I see that there is an us versus them culture, a sort of client versus professional culture that, as professions, we are against clients. Now, uh, something that I'll say quite often to clients is, right, it's not me versus you. It's me and you versus Mm -hmm. the problem. We are Mm -hmm. together fighting your problems, fighting the issues. It's not me against you. It's us together. But as me and Mm -hmm. you have discussed at length today, that doesn't always fit with the systems that you, I, and other social workers work within, which can often be punitive, adversarial, bureaucratic, and very far from family-focused. They can often be process-driven and resource-driven rather than needs and person-driven. What can we do with you and I? I'm I'm asking you the miracle question here, Leanne. I'm social (laughs) working you right now, my friend. (laughs) Right, this is what I was doing. I'm social worker. You know, the the social workers in the session here. Um, In five years' time, no, I'm I'm being silly there. Um, What what can we do to create a better culture? What can we do to create a more family focused culture? And what can we do to try and get away from this us versus them culture that pervades through many aspects of social work? Yeah. And I think it it starts first, it starts individually. So um, for us all to kind of check in with ourselves on a regular basis, make sure that we're not bringing any biases into uh, our communication and our and the work that we do with clients and families. Um, so just making sure that that we're checking any biases that we have and that we're constantly learning. Um, I, I believe very strongly that we should all be constantly learning and educating ourselves on, uh, on the population that we work with, on um, resources available. And I believe that if families families, again, they can sense when you're there for them and when you're in their corner. I'm always upfront with um, with individuals that I work with in, in various capacities because we do have laws and regulations and things that we have to follow. And I'm upfront. I never want anyone to feel like, you know, well, you didn't tell me if I did X, Y, and Z. You know, I never want there to be any surprises, but I, I want the family and the individuals to know I'm in your corner. I'm here to support you. I do not want this, you know, 
potential negative outcome to happen. How can I support you? How can I help you? What can we do together? And, and you spoke to it. It's not me. It's not me versus you. It's us versus the problem. And, and if they know that you're a true teammate and that you are there and that you have their back and you're there to help address the problem. And if they feel that, um, because it, I mean, that could be the case, but if the family doesn't feel that from you and they don't feel the, um, the sincerity behind it, um, they're going to be resistant and they're not going to believe you, you know? So I think if, as long as we are um, mindful, mindful of our, our, our biases and how they can impact the people that we work with. And if we're able to just come at our families with that compassion, um, I could see, I could see us truly aligning with, with families and supporting them and walking alongside of them because though, and then the, you know, and on a bigger level, you know, there's different policies and things that they could change and benefit. One thing, one being, you know, we'll pay maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year for a kid to be in care, but some people will turn their nose up at providing a family a hundred dollars to go towards their light bill. So it honestly, get cut mate, off, you know? oh, you've got you've got on one. So um, I just don't understand this. So if we if we think about an extreme case here in in England where I work. Mm-hmm. So if we if we ask for a child to go into a secure residential placement with on-site education, that can cost the local authority about six, seven, eight thousand pounds a week. That's about ten thousand dollars a week. That mm-hmm. so that's an extreme high-end sort of placement for a mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. vulnerable child. Now, you could send a child to Disneyland. For that, you could you could pay for a child to go to private school. The amount mm-hmm. of help that could be done at an early stage, and yet there's something so wrong with the system where in, instead, instead mm-hmm. of putting money and finances and resources and effort into early intervention, mm-hmm. what we'll do instead is we'll say, right, families have got to fend for yourself. We're going to close your youth clubs. We're going to shut down the local parks. We're going to you know, stop the, the local childhood centres and free provision and community offers and so forth. But when it comes to the fine end, you know, the, the, the fine end of things, if a child is at significant risk of harm, we're going to throw money at hand over fist. We're going to pay hundreds of pounds an hour for barristers. We're going to have various professionals involved. And we can mm-hmm. You know, paying seven thousand pound, ten thousand dollars plus a week in order to put a child in a residential setting, where we know, as you said earlier, and it's the same on this side of the Atlantic as it is with you, mm-hmm. children who have been subject to the care system come out with poor life chances. They come out with worse educational achievements. They come out at higher risk mm-hmm. of pregnancy, higher risk of ended up in prison, higher risk of drug dependency. Of course, the argument rages on that one, whether were those issues that were because of the childhood that they spent with their parents or were those issues because of the care system. That's not something we've got a conclusive answer to. What we do know is exactly the same as you said, that it can sometimes be a struggle. I worked in a council not that long ago, and this isn't a lie, Leanne. Mm-hmm. I worked in a council not that long ago. I had to get permission from my manager for a stamp. 
for a stamp. <laughs> I, I not this honestly, people think I am joking. For a postage I, I, stamp. A, for a, a postage. postage, a postage stamp. <laughs> so that's like that's like 60 pence, like a dollar stamp. Now yeah. I had to get permission. Now I was going out there and I was seeing vulnerable children by myself. I was making mm. recommendations to court and so forth. Yet I wasn't wow. trusted. I was I, the, the, the finances were so closely monitored. I wasn't trusted. I had to get permission for a first-class wow. postage stamp from a manager. And that's just wow. one example of how, how the skewed the system is. And yet, mm-hmm. um, and yet you would <laughs> So you would sometimes you would sometimes spend maybe an hour if if you wanted a, a, maybe ten pound fifteen twenty dollars or something to to get some groceries for a family or to get some money on the electric or gas meter to put some heating on the home that evening. It would sometimes take me around an hour to fill in the paperwork to get permission mm-hmm. to go and collect this money, but I was paid more. My time spent in that hour was a lot more than the money that we were asking for the family. And the system was just so mm-hmm. wrong. There were many times, and I've got to be honest, I might get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There were, times <laughs> I, there were many times I would just pay things out of my own pocket for a family. Yeah. If it was you know, yeah. £10 for groceries or a quick trip to mm-hmm. McDonald's or for mm-hmm. soft pay provision or some nappies for a child. Because if I didn't just go and put my hand in my own pocket and pay for that, I would have to ring up a manager, I'd have to fill in a form, I'd have to email, yeah. I'd have to drive somewhere and collect it that literally could spend a couple of hours doing that and of course if it's five six o'clock in the evening the financial office and the cash office and the people who fill in these forms are shut so you've got to be in my bonnet there because it frustrates me so much that's so so right my friend yes the system is just predicated towards finances and procedures and Mm -hmm. systems Mm -hmm. which again pervades an us versus them culture um mm-hmm. coming back though my friend what what other things would you do because because for me i'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm gonna raise this point with you just to see what you think so here in the united kingdom there appears to be a massive disconnect between what university teaches you and what mm-hmm. you do in the workplace that university doesn't really prepare you for the workplace or if you come at it from the other angle, the workplace doesn't fit what you should be trained to do as a social worker. So mm. university is very good at teaching you that ethical value base. You have to act you know, in a congruent manner. You have to be person-centered. There are whole modules on communication and person-centered values. And yet, when you get put into a local authority council system, you're given 30 cases that are perhaps in a difficult <sighs> way. You've got procedures you've got processes you've got deadlines you cannot practice in the way you've been taught because that takes time if you want to if you want to practice in a congruent and empathetic and person-centered manner you can't do that when you've got 30 plus cases is that similar in the u.s do you have that disconnect between what university teaches you and what the workplace actually gives you the time and resources and affords you to do yeah and i and i yeah i think for so for casework specifically, yes and no. So I think the so the county I worked in, they did there's an intensive, I believe it was eight weeks of training before you go out and, and do uh do the job. But I actually I started as an intern so that I kind of had that that almost year worth of worth of training. And I think that that lended 
itself, uh, it lent it to my benefit for sure. Now, if I was to come in immediately straight from, from school and have not had that internship, I would say, absolutely. I would say I, I would have not been prepared at all. It was only because I did it when, as an intern, I very much, uh, even yeah, though I technically sorry. couldn't carry, you know, I technically yeah. didn't have a caseload, but I, I was definitely being utilized. You know, it's like the interns here and I had actual cases. I was out late at night like a caseworker. I was doing, yeah, you know, yeah. all of the, the casework, um, all of the casework duties. And I, I feel like child welfare. I remember someone told me when I first started, they said, it'll be two years before you know how to, before you really feel yes. comfortable even doing this job. And I don't know if it's the same thing there, but that definitely rang true. It was about a good two years before I felt like, okay, I'm not super nervous every time I'm, you know, making this initial phone call or doing this paperwork. I, I know the next step and I don't, you know, it was a good two years before I felt, you yeah. know, really comfortable. And, and I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what um, could have been taught to really prepare me for my role um, outside of that boots on the ground, hands-on experience. Yeah, and 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 I think that here in the United Kingdom, there is a bit of a lottery in terms of placement experience so whilst you do your social work education at university you have two practice placement experiences if you are doing um, the degree you'll do that in years two and three if you are doing the master's degree as i did you do that in years one and two because it's a two-year course as opposed to a three-year undergrad course and you can you can give a preference you can give a suggestion as to what you would like to do you can say i want to work in mental health disabilities mm. drug and alcohol adults children and so forth but you know we're guaranteed nowhere near guaranteed getting what you want or getting where you want to be and it can be it can be a lottery those um students who get a, a statutory placement as we would call it what you're ref you're referring to there mm -hmm. do come out with a lot richer experience than those that don't some people can be in very poor quality placements so I think if I was to offer my views on addressing this us and them culture, I think there has to be a lot better connection, a lot better co-working between what university prepares you for and what the workplace allows you to do, because both are right. You know, both are right. You know, the local authority sometimes has to, has to operate in a manner that isn't as, as empathetic as it would want to be. Because if you've got a certain number of families that are needing help, but you've already got a certain amount of resources and social workers, then you have to scale back what you can give. And sadly, if you scale back what you can give, you can't give the time. And then mm -hmm. what happens is social workers are left in a horrible position, which is if I want to be the social worker that I was trained to be and taught I should be, I've got to personally sacrifice my free time. Mm. And yeah. that is why you see social workers burning out. I, mm -hmm. The social workers I see burning out the most, Liana, the social workers that care the most. That's that's. Yeah. The, yeah. The harsh reality. The people mm -hmm. I see burning out are the social workers that are working till seven, eight, nine o'clock every single evening 
because they're out there meeting families. Their visits are two hours long rather than half an hour long. Their paperwork mm-hmm. is extremely detailed and, and, and really rich and, and incredibly captures children's lived experiences. The social workers that tend to not burn out so much and are coping a bit better are the ones that have learned, well, actually, yeah, I've just got to, I've got to give a little bit less. And it's a horrible bargain to come to. When you come to mm-hmm. that point as a social worker, which I did many years ago, which is, God, I can't be the social worker that I want to be. You've yeah. got a choice between either, well, you scale back what you can do or you burn out because you can't do both. If you've right. got 35 cases and if you're working in an inadequate authority that doesn't have the correct procedures and processes and support in place, you, you can't do most of the things we've been talking about here, which is why I, I want to be very clear to our listeners, and I'm sure you would echo this, I don't want to be criticizing any social worker that's listening to this and thinking, well, I'd love to, I'd love to practice with the models that you and Leanne are talking about, but I don't have the time. I get that. There's been many times in my career I haven't been able to do that. I'm incredibly lucky right now that I've got a caseload of 19. The local authority where I currently work, I've got a caseload of 19. That means I can do everything I want to do. I can do the family support work. I can be the kind mm-hmm. of social worker mm-hmm. that I want to be. I've been in some local authorities before, Leanne, where I've had 30 cases. I've been in one where I had 45 cases. I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I, I My visits were literally popping in half an hour. How are things doing? Quick look around the home, on to the next family. There was no relationship building. There was no empathy yeah. practice. There was certainly no sitting down and asking people where they wanted to be in five years' time because I was thinking, well, I don't want to be in this local authority in five weeks' time, let alone mm-hmm. here in five years' time. So I think the system has to match it. Um, you've got me on. You've got me on another one of my soapboxes. Stop- <laughs> um, just to finish off my friend i'm i'm pretty sure that many people myself included would love to hear from you again so because you know everything you've said today has been amazing i think you come across as a truly empathetic and person-centered social worker and you you've you've certainly taught me a lot and i hope our listeners i'm sure our listeners would feel exactly the same way um i know you are running a book club would you like to share a little bit with our listeners about your book club and how they get in touch with you and get involved and tell us a a bit about that because personally i would love to but it's going to be too early in the morning for me. Yeah. i'm usually well in bed by that time but for our listeners who are who are night owls and stay up a bit later here in the uk or our listeners in america could you tell them a little bit about your book club when that is and what's it about yes absolutely so myself and a, a friend and former colleague we are going to be uh doing a book club uh Dr. Bruce Perry's new book, What Happened to You, um, Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And it definitely will. So the reason we're doing the book club is to uh, connect with other individuals who are in this, in the helping profession, um, other social workers. And we're going to deep do a deep dive into the chapter. So we're going to uh, just kind of have that open discussion to kind of uh gauge and get some insight from other individuals so it's we're going to be starting that on june 1st through the 22nd um and and again we'll be going doing about three chapters every week it's going to be tuesdays uh at 8 p.m and if someone is interested in joining uh, you can email me 
and I will send you a Zoom link. Uh, my email is leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, one zero eight two nine at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll get you we'll get you that Zoom link out. We're definitely looking to connect with um, you know people who are interested in in talking and discussing what happened to you and how it relates to the child welfare system. And 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 I'll be picking up on that. I'll be sitting and talking to Leanne and saying, Leanne, tell me all about this. And I'll be reading the book. I would love to join as I say, timing is a little bit off for me here on this side of the Atlantic. So guys, mm-hmm. yes. Do check up that. It does look absolutely amazing. And I'll certainly be getting that book and following from afar. Um, Leanne, once more, my friend, thank you ever so much. Firstly, for coming on the podcast. And secondly, for engaging in such a deep and rich and rewarding conversation this evening. Um, It's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed your time in the virtual social work studio too, my friend. Yes, thank you so much, Social Work Tutor. The pleasure was definitely all mine. I have really enjoyed this conversation. And again, just thank you for for having me. No, thank you so much. We'll get you back, my friend. We'll get you back on the Out of Hours podcast. Um, People who support us on Patreon get those Out of Hours shows. It's a bit bit more informal. We'll talk about, we might talk about what your favourite food is, what your favourite film is. We might share some funny stories about our professional and personal lives. A bit more of a relaxed uh, conversation. Those of you guys who do want to catch up on those uh, Patreon shows, if you head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com for Forward slash social work tutor or Google Patreon social work tutor. You'll be able to go on, access our out of hours podcasts. You also get these podcasts, the main shows before anybody else. And there are over a hundred catalog recordings of past podcasts on our heritage library on there. Leanne, once more, my friend, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you ever so much for your company. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.